Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Которые все прислали от моего имени. Again, I want to apologize to my teammates and the organization, GEMCA for any damage that I may have done to them. I never intended on hurting them. This is my second home, and all I wanted to do was just win championships and make them proud. Я также еще раз хочу извиниться перед моими товарищами по команде, перед организацией ВМК. Я никогда не хотела навредить им, и это стало моим вторым домом, для которого я хотела выигрывать новые награды. Thank you, Your Honor. Спасибо, Ваша честь. Listening there to a live interview with U.S. basketball star Brittany Grinder. You were listening to her apologize, saying she had no intention of breaking any Russian laws. It comes after days of hearings in her trial for bringing hash oil into Russia. She's been there since February. She was apologizing to her colleagues, to the Russians, once again saying that she had no intention of breaking any laws. We are waiting, of course, now for a verdict to come in that trial. Prosecutors have asked for nine and a half years, a sentence of nine and a half years in prison. And, of course, the United States behind the scenes negotiating and out loud trying to negotiate to uh, to get her release once this sentencing takes place. Amanda Davies joins us now. Amanda, obviously you know her as a sports star in the United States. She was working in Russia as well and have been following this trial very closely. What do you make of what we heard from her there? Yeah, Julia, I, I think it's fair to say it was a, a very emotional statement mm. uh, addressing the court from Brittany Griner. This, her eighth hearing uh, and... Uh, you summed it up very well there. She began uh, on quite a lengthy statement uh, through a translator, went on for a good uh, seven or eight minutes or so, uh, going back to her childhood, talking about her, her family life at home in the United States and the moral compass that was instilled by her family, saying that her father told her two things, to take ownership and responsibility in life and to work hard. And she went on to say, that is why I pled guilty. I understand the charges, uh, but had no intent to break any Russian law. That was something she she brought up three times uh, within her statement, stressing there was never any intention to break the law. It was, uh, she is pleading to the courts to the judge and the prosecutors to understand that it was just an honest mistake that after everything with, with COVID and the time uh, being stuck, unable to travel in Russia, she just wanted to get back home. Um, she said she uh, had no idea that when she moved to Russia to, to play with this team that she has been part of for a, a good number 
of years that they would become such an integral, large part of her family. She says that she had no idea the team, the city, my teammates would make such a great impression on me. Uh, The fact that it had become a second home was another one of those phrases that she brought up uh, on more than one uh, occasion. She apologised. She made apologies to her teammates at Ekaterinburg. She apologised to her family, her parents and her siblings and to the people, her fellow players of the WNBA in the United States who have, uh, who have supported her and been doing all they can, as you know, to try and take her back to America after this six months where she has been in prison. She then brought up what so many people have been discussing with this case, that the political ramifications of it. She said, for all the talk of the politics, I hope that that has no place in this courtroom. She was hoping that the court would take into account the documents and her character references. And then as she got particularly emotional towards the end, she apologised once again, saying, all I wanted to do here was to win championships and make you as a team proud. It was a very, very moving statement, uh, Julia, just uh, a mere matter of minutes after hearing the prosecutors uh, call for a 9.5 year prison sentence. Uh, And we do understand that there will be a verdict reached later on Thursday evening in Moscow. That. And of course, we'll bring that to our viewers as, certain, as soon as it, it arrives. You quite rightly point out the political backdrop here that, that Britney said she hopes doesn't play into this. And that's always been the big fear. Um, the Russians have accused the United States of employing megaphone diplomacy in their requests and broadcasting what they're hoping for here, which is an exchange not only of Britney, but of course, another a prisoner, Paul Whelan. And Russia has asked for the exchange of an arms dealer, Victor Bout, and CNN's reporting that Russia is also asking for the convicted murderer, uh, Vasim Kresikov, as well. Of course, I'll remind our viewers that CNN reporting um, on that story, too. So this is sort of the backdrop, in addition to what we're waiting for, the verdict here. I think to your point as well, and this is something that we've all followed very closely, is her family back home and her wife in particular that's been continually requesting for attention on Britney's story as well. And, and what sort of brought it home to me was what she said there at the end, which is, was, I hope you will not end my life with your ruling, because that's what, in many ways, whether it's career or, or, or nine and a half years, if that's indeed what the, the sentence comes through us and the prosecutors are talking about, I mean, that's huge, dramatic, life-changing. Yeah, absolutely uh, it is. And there, there was a very subtle shift, wasn't there, after the uh, initial... Um, it was initially revealed uh, what had happened. There was, there was the uncertainty. There was a lot of the information kept behind closed doors. It only emerged after the uh, event of the arrest in February and, and the family had respected privacy and those closest to her had said, you know, please, we do not want this to be talked about in the public domain. We do not want her to be used as a political pawn. And then as things ha- have gone on and, and, and time has elapsed, it... it, it There has been a general feeling that bringing this story into the public domain is perhaps the way forwards. And the the statistic that um, is being talked about all so often in this case is that the number of these um, 
cases and these situations where the verdicts are overturned and and the prisoner is released that those statistics are pretty bleak uh, on paper and you know nine and a half years it is is a long time having already served six years and this is a she is a sports star who is at the top of her game as a, as a two-time uh, Olympic gold medal winner. We've seen in recent weeks and months that the profile, the support that she's had from uh, players in the NBA during the, the NBA finals um, and a lot of people understandably watching uh, with interest and uh, with fingers crossed uh, to see what happens over the coming hours, Julia. Yeah, and we shall bring that verdict to our viewers the moment it comes through. Amanda, thank you very much for your context there, Amanda Davies. Okay, let's return now to some business news and plenty to come this Thursday, including a major interest rate move by the Bank of England and strong Alibaba results showing a resilient Chinese consumer. That's welcome news. Let me give you a look on Wall Street as well. US stocks set to build on Wednesday's strong gains. The Nasdaq rising more than 2.5%. Investors appreciating, I think, new data showing a resilient US economy too, with services sector activity actually picking up steam last month. Some hints of easing inflationary pressures in that data too. We'll discuss later on in the show. We've obviously got US jobs numbers out tomorrow too, and they're going to be key as more corporations announce layoff plans. Walmart is now saying it plans to cut 300 corporate positions as its profit problems mount. That's cost-cutting measures, clearly. And in Europe, UK stocks are higher after the Bank of England raised rates by a half a percentage point, as expected. That's its biggest hike since 1995, when Wonderwall by Oasis was in the charts. Wow, that feels like a long time ago. No Oasis at all from inflationary pressures, though. The Bank of England expects price rises to top out at more than 13% in October, and it's also warning on recession risks. In the meantime, Germany posting its fifth straight month of declining factory orders too. Across to Asia, and you can call it a post-Pelosi-Taiwan trip turnaround, stocks solidly higher after the House Speaker's departure, erasing some at least of what was lost earlier this week. Hong Kong, the big winner, actually up more than 2%. That said, though, tensions do remain high in the waters off Taiwan. The Chinese military has begun what it says will be days of massive military manoeuvres. We'll discuss the ongoing tensions and an escalation, what an escalation might mean for regional trade with the finance minister of Malaysia. He's coming up on the show too. For now, though, let's give you the latest video from the Chinese military showing multiple conventional missiles were launched from mainland China in Thursday's live fire exercises, targeting areas in the waters off Taiwan's east coast. The drills prompted Korean Air to cancel flights to Taiwan over safety concerns. Selena Wang joins us on this now. Selena, good to have you with us. We were asking yesterday what an actual blockade would look like and what it would feel like. And I think what these strikes into the waters off Taiwan prove is that China has the capabilities to create one if they choose to do so. Are these launches now over? What do we know? Well, Julia, these military drills are going to be continuing over the next few days through Sunday. But I think you really got that point right, because the message China is sending here is that it has the ability to choke off Taiwan from the rest of the world. And one of the biggest impacts of these military drills is psychological. It is inflicting fear in the people of Taiwan of the worst of what could still come. Because even if we do not see conflict break out in the short term over the Pelosi visit, the fear is that the visit gives China an excuse to change the status quo and increase its coercion of Taiwan over the long term. Fighter jets scrambling to take off. 
missiles on the move. And plumes of smoke seen by residents in the Chinese city closest to Taiwan. The video shows live rockets being fired towards the Taiwan Straits. Moments later, state media confirmed the launch. The woman filming says, wow, we're witnessing history. Beijing unleashing a show of force on Taiwan over U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. China's military claims it's starting the largest ever drills around the island. My teammates and I flew our fighter and headed for the airspaces around the Taiwan island. We are ready for combat and able to fight at any time. Defying Beijing's threats, Pelosi met with Taiwan's president and key lawmakers and business leaders. Crowds of supporters in Taipei welcomed her. Taiwan has been an island of Brazilians, and now more than ever, America's solidarity with Taiwan is crucial, and that is the message we are bringing here today. China's foreign ministry says the trip is a, quote, outright farce. Taiwan calls this the median line. More than 20 Chinese warplanes crossed the line the day after Pelosi landed, an unprecedented number. They're demonstrating that they don't recognize Taiwan's lines because they don't recognize Taiwan. So this is an act of political warfare, psychological warfare, and information warfare. It's also a very important signal to China's own people to demonstrate its resolve. These boxes encircling the island are where Beijing says their military drills are happening. It's a blockade, say both Beijing and Taipei, and a major provocation in the eyes of Taiwan and the U.S. But to a lot of Chinese citizens, it's not enough, especially after officials had hyped up expectations of an unprecedented military response. Disappointed, wrote one person on China's Twitter-like platform Weibo. Another mocked that its leaders should speak less, do more. But far from speaking less, officials are issuing one fiery statement after another, all condemning Pelosi's trip. It also banned imports of thousands of food items from Taiwan and suspended exports of natural sand, a key component in semiconductor chips. All of this rage just over a two-day visit. Pelosi's presence in Taiwan, a slap in the face to Beijing, which insists the self-governed island is a rebel Chinese province. Pelosi is out of Taiwan, but she left a crisis behind her. Beijing's retaliation is just getting started. And we've been expecting this muscular show of force because China needs to live up to the expectations it set and all the threats it was making leading up to this trip. But the reality is, even though these drills increase the risk of a miscalculation, China does not actually want this to spiral out of control. When we look at these very striking images, we have to remember that they're also directed at the audience here because Chinese leaders want to show their people that they are taking very seriously what they're calling a national humiliation. So we have to watch really closely how far China actually goes in these military drills, not how far they say they will go, Julia. Great point. Selena Wang, thank you for that context. Good to have you with us. Okay, let's move on. The Bank of England raised rates by the most in 27 years as it fights inflation last seen in the early 80s. But that won't be enough to save the UK from a year-long recession, according to the bank. It predicts that inflation will hit 13% by year-end. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. It's just painful reading. I've just been reading through uh, this statement. I think they're going to go into 2023 with the highest inflation and the worst growth of, um, of all the G7 nations, Claire. They're raising rates because they have to, but the outlook's bleak. 
Yeah, Julia, their hand was forced, I think, with inflation already at 9.4%. There was very little that they could do to, to sort of get around this. So half a percentage point, almost unanimous, just one dissenter on the committee. And as you say, this was forced by inflation. And the biggest factor in that, according to Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, was Russia, the, the impact of the war in Ukraine and that, what that's done to energy prices. He talked about a, 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 a doubling of wholesale gas prices since May that is trickling through to retail prices. So we have a forecast of a recession starting in the fourth quarter that will extend through 2023. Inflation set to peak in the fourth quarter as well, over 13%. Bear in mind their previous forecast for inflation to peak was at 11%. So this is a significant uptick just in the last few months. And he did acknowledge the sort of uncharted, very difficult, very controversial moment that this is for monetary policy, raising rates this aggressively when the UK is essentially already probably contracting and that UK... Uh, you know, people are facing a historic cost of living crisis. Here's how he justified it. If we don't bring it back to target, and if we get these so-called second round effects entering in, it's going to get worse. And it will get worse precisely, I'm afraid, for those who are least well off in society. So while I have huge sympathy and, you know, huge understanding for those who are struggling most with this, and I know that they will feel, well, you know, why have you raised interest rates today? Doesn't that make it worse from that perspective in terms of consumption? I'm afraid my side is it doesn't because I'm afraid the alternative is even worse in terms of persistent inflation. Front-loading, Julia, in other words, that's exactly what we heard from the ECB with its first rate rise in 11 years just a few weeks ago. He did also note multiple times throughout that press conference that any forecasts that they're giving today are fraught with uncertainty, not just what Russia might do, but also, you know, worth pointing out that there's going to be a new prime minister in the UK by the time the Bank of England holds its next meeting. So a lot of uncertainty there. A lot of things could change. Just a quick uh, look at the pound uh, before we go. It's actually come down a little bit, uh, not supported, as you might think, by uh, higher interest rates, uh, but actually down a little bit, probably because of that recession forecast, Julian. Yeah, I mean, the challenge that every central bank, I think, in the world is facing at this moment, deep uncertainty uh, beyond anything else. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. OK, straight ahead, the Malaysian finance minister talks challenges, economic growth and supporting the economy with all the challenges the world is facing today. And travel giant booking holdings expecting a record season, even as cancelled flights and COVID challenges continue to weigh. That's all coming up. Stay with us. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks on track for a mixed open this Thursday, boosted, though, by positive earnings from the likes of insurance company Cigna and Burger King parent company. Restaurant brands, tech stocks are now positive for the month of August after July's more than 11 percent jump. Wow. Earnings news out of Asia, too. Alibaba shares set to rise around 5 percent in U.S. trade after posting better than expected results. China's online retail giant seeing flat revenues for the first time ever. That said, investors were expecting worse. Given the weakening Chinese economy, expectations are for sales to pick up once again as lockdowns in major Chinese cities ease. Now, slowing economic growth out of China, just one of the headwinds Malaysia is dealing with on top of lingering global supply chain issues. And of course, the war in Ukraine, the country's also still battling, like many other nations in the world, the pressure of higher prices. However, Malaysia's inflation rate of 3.4% is among the lowest in Southeast Asia, thanks to record government subsidies.
subsidies they say keeping a lid on rising prices. Economic growth numbers are also strong and the second quarter looking good. However, the problem with those record subsidies, sky-high debt still. Malaysia's finance minister says the country is not at risk of any kind of economic collapse similar to what's being seen in Sri Lanka at this moment. We have much to discuss. Joining us now is Malaysian finance minister Tengku Zafrul Aziz. Minister Zafrul, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start with what you've been discussing now for many months, which is the challenge for the Malaysian people, and that's pricing pressures, food, fuel across the board, and, of course, the challenge of dealing with it. Is that the same today? Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for having me here. It's good to see you live. Um, On Malaysia, I think you've summed it up quite well just now. Um, We have inflation uh, under control uh, relative to our neighbours and relative to what we see in the rest of the world. Uh, Inflation is forecasted to be between uh, 2.2% to 3.2%. Uh, in fact, um, first six months of the year, inflation is around 2.5%. And that's largely due to the uh, large size of subsidy that we have uh, introduced. And we are forecasting it to be around 80 billion ringgit. That's close to 20 billion uh, US dollars. So we have capped especially the essential items, especially fuel. Fuel is at uh, it's about 40 cents uh, per litre, right? That's one of the cheapest in the world. Um, but the concern is, of course, uh, when you said, what is the impact to our fiscal? Uh, is there a fiscal constraint? Um, the answer is actually, Julia, um, we are still we still have fiscal space. Um, our debt to GDP is at 60%, our statutory debt over GDP. We have uh, imposed a ceiling uh, by parliament at 65%, so there's still room. Uh, and we're still maintaining uh, our target uh, deficit at 6%. Uh, we are obviously a, a commodity uh, export uh, country. We we, uh, we do benefit from the stronger uh, commodity prices, especially the prices in oil. The budget, for example, uh, assume uh, oil price at $66. And today, as you know, it's much higher than that, just slightly below $100. Mm. Um, and all the subsidies means that if we didn't do it, we didn't impo- uh, implement the subsidies, actually, uh, our Department of Statistics uh, said that our inflation could be around 11%. Wow. I mean, subsidies as you know as well as I do, and many people will be looking, introduce other challenges. Um, but to your point, I yeah. think with the pricing pressure issue, this is what you focus on first. So let's break it down. As you said, uh, near $20 billion worth of subsidies this year, and I believe that is a record. You are also looking at the efficiency, I know, of those subsidies as well. C- can you just confirm that there will be no cuts, even when you look at the efficiencies? As far as the people are concerned, you're not going to remove any of those subsidies this year, and you will find the money to finance them, because by your own admission, the yes. revenues this year are not going to be enough to finance them, so you are going to have to raise money some other way. Yes, uh, you're right, Julia. Um, we are not planning to uh, reduce the subsidies this year. Um, we are slowly uh, recovering from what we all went through. The pandemic, uh, COVID-19, has really impacted the economy. We're slowly opening up. The borders have opened up. The economic sectors have opened up. And the first quarter GDP growth was a strong one, 5%. And second quarter looks stronger. Um, and we do not want to you know, pull the handbrake too soon. 
Um, so we have seen uh, that subsidies does help uh, the economy. Um, but like you said, uh, we, it is not sustainable to continue uh, this kind of subsidies in the longer term. But in the short term, it's something that we need to do. Uh, but in the longer term, the subsidy has to be more targeted. Today, it's a, it's a blanket subsidy. Everyone gets uh, someone who, uh, you know, who is the top 20% of, uh, of the population continues to enjoy the subsidies, the same amount of subsidy as the uh, bottom 40% of our population, for example. And as you know, uh, the rich consume more, so they actually uh, benefit more from the subsidy. So in the longer term, you're right, it's not sustainable. Uh, but in the short to medium term, uh, especially in the short term in this case, uh, we need to contain, uh, we need to be responsive of what's happening today uh, in, in Malaysia. And of course, it's, it's similar to what's happening globally. Having said that, we are cautious as well. Uh, monetary policy is tightening also in Malaysia, right? Um, we have increased gradually in phases uh, by 25 basis points uh, a few months ago and another 25 basis points a month ago. So it's about 50 basis point, but it's still below uh, our our our, uh, our rates are still below uh, what it was uh, before uh, pre-pandemic. You understand, I think, better than most the delicate balancing act that many political leaders have been through over the past few years, which is trying to support your economy, keep your people happy, maintain the confidence of international financial markets as well, which is something that tends to, to be forgotten as, as people are dealing with the ordinary challenges of, of living. Your FDI flows have remained solid. The trade figures look strong, which is part of the benefit, I think, of, of being a, a commodity, net commodity exporter in, in these kind of moments. But I want to tackle something that I've seen written about in the press, which is comparisons between Malaysia and the economic challenges in Sri Lanka at this moment. Not today in Sri Lanka, but the progression and the economic deterioration. Can you just explain to, to our viewers and perhaps also to your people why the situation isn't similar and, mm. and why you'll continue to maintain the confidence of, of financial markets in particular? Thank you, Julia. Um, well, if you compare the economies of uh, Sri Lanka and Malaysia, it's very different. We are much mm. more diversified. Um, Sri Lanka is very much focused on tourism. We obviously, like you mentioned, we are ex net exporter of commodities, for example. Uh, our reserves is about 106 billion uh, US dollars compared to Sri Lanka is only 3 uh, billion US dollars. And, if, if, and our debt to GDP, as I mentioned just now, is around 60%, whereas uh, Sri Lanka is you know, above, above 100%. And more importantly, um, if you look at where we are today in terms of our borrowings, our foreign denominated uh, borrowings only 2.5% of our total debt. So 97.5% is actually in uh, ringgit, our borrowings. So uh, we are less. And then, of course, Sri Lanka is facing a twin deficit, and we are not. Yeah, I mean, there are significant differences in the, the baseline yes. economics between the two countries. It's the fiscal prudency, I think, from here on out that is the key. And as you've said, you, you maintain eyes on it. Um, can Malaysia avoid a recession, given that it is such an open economy, if we do see even a yes. soft recession in the United States, a, a potentially likely recession, I guess, in the EU and, of course, slowing growth in China, who is your largest trade partner? Yeah, for Malaysia, um, we are optimistic that this year we will post a positive growth uh, between 5.3 and 6.3 percent. As I mentioned, we have no, we know our, our first quarter result that's around 5 percent, and second quarter even be stronger than that. And our third quarter, by definition, our third quarter last year was actually negative. So the third quarter this year will continue to be positive. So we are uh, quite uh, you know, optimistic that it will be despite the slowdown uh, in the US. And oh, you're right, we are an open economy. Trade to GDP is 120%. But the concern will be 2023, 
right? 2023 will be a challenge. We need to see uh, how the world economy performs then. Um, and that's when I think we really need to relook at some of our policies. But what's important is uh, we, we must be prepared that the economic, the global economy is uh, slowing down. I think also what was uh, lost in the past few days was a visit by the US Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Malaysia, as, as well as other nations in the region, which I, I do think is important for us all to note. But uh, obviously the tensions mm -hmm. between China, between Taiwan in particular, but obviously we can add in the United States, has been very much watched here. Can I ask how closely you're watching it? And, and just as a hypothetical, what a, a blockade of the Taiwan Straits would mean for Malaysia's economy and for the region in terms of economic outlook, because it mm. is, of course, a key trade route. Yeah. Well, China is very important to Malaysia in terms mm. of trade. Uh, this is our biggest trading partner. Um, there is will be risk of slowdown if that happens. Uh, me, uh, as finance minister, we're monitoring this very closely uh, from the economic perspective. Um, like I said, China is the major trading partner to, to Malaysia. And we've seen uh, Malaysia's uh, economic performance is also dependent uh, on how China tackles its own COVID policy. It has been very conservative and it's affected our supply chain, for example. So if, if anything happens uh, with Taiwan, uh, we will definitely have to monitor this very, very closely as it will have uh, impact. Uh, you know, regional uh, stability is crucial uh, for our recovery. And policy would adjust accordingly because it would have to. It will have to. You're right, Julia. It will have to. Everything is very fluid and we will monitor this closely. Can I ask you about your personal political ambitions? And I'm sort of smiling as I say it because... Uh, because, again, a lot, a lot has been made of this. You've been made the treasurer of a, the political coalition that we're well known by, by Malaysians. Um, can I ask what your political ambitions are? And admittedly, you have to focus on the job at hand now. But do you have ambitions, perhaps, maybe to lead the country one day? I'm smiling, <laughs> well, by the way, um, as I you... ask this question. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question, but uh, I think that's the toughest question for today. Uh, I do my best. Thank you for that question, Julia. <laughs> um, yes, well, my focus is really a service to the nation. Uh, I'm a senator today, and it's a limited term formally in parliament. Uh, as a senator in parliament in Malaysia, you serve a limited term for six years. And if you want to continue to serve the nation, you need uh, to be actively involved. Uh, in pol policy, uh, in policy, uh, in politics, right? So, um, and my focus now is on continuing to the fiscal reform, and to continue in the longer term, um, I've you know decided to go into uh, politics and you know play a role uh, in uh, in in the in a political party. You know, as you found over the last two years, that responsibility can mean tough decisions. It can mean unpopular decisions. And I think as we look around the world, we've seen leaders that have decided to perhaps make populist decisions, make promises perhaps that they can't keep. How do you avoid those kind of choices? Maintain truth, yeah. even when actually telling the truth may harm you politically. Mm. How, do you, how do you find that balance? Well, there is... To me, t doing the right thing, there's, there is, is, you just have to do it. There's no trade-off for that. 
um, what's important is um, people understand why you make that tough decision. Always the problem with making tough decision is you do not find the time uh, and the, the best way is to communicate this well, right? Uh, you know, we need stronger stakeholder management uh, and we have done that uh, and we made a lot of tough decisions, especially during uh, the, the crisis, uh, the pandemic COVID-19 crisis. So I think communication will be key um, and best, best to also focus on the nation reform. Yeah, talk to the people. Sir, great to talk to you. Yes, Come back and them. talk to us soon, please, and we'll, we'll track your progress. Malaysian Finance Minister there. Thank you, Saffrul Aziz. Sir, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. In the coming hours, we expect a verdict in the Brittany Griner case. The U.S. basketball star has admitted to bringing cannabis into Russia. Moments ago, she said it was an honest mistake. That's why I pled guilty to my charges. I understand everything that's being said against me, the charges that are against me, and that is why I pled guilty. But I had no intent to break any Russian laws. The prosecutor is seeking a nine-and-a-half-year jail time. Griner was arrested in February after vape cartridges with cannabis oil were found in her luggage. <clears throat> Excuse me. CNN correspondent Kylie Atwood joins us now. Kylie, parallel, of course, to this trial with the negotiations by the United States with Russian officials to try and secure her release. Where will this announcement of a verdict then leave those negotiations? Yeah, so the expectation is that today will impact those ongoing conversations to try and get Brittany Griner home. And here's why, because U.S. officials have said that there would probably need to be both admission of guilt from Griner, which we have seen. She pled guilty and she reiterated today in court that this was a mistake, that she didn't intend to break Russian law, and that there would need to be sentencing in her trial. And that is what we are waiting for today before there could be any sort of actual prisoner swap that would occur here. Now, the Biden administration did go to Russia back in June to try and get the wheels churning on this, to try and get a prisoner swap as part of a deal to get Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, another American wrongfully detained in Russia, home. And we are told that the Russians ha didn't come back with really substantive, uh, legitimate response to that. They proposed that there was another Russian that they wanted included in that. That Russian is actually serving a prison sentence in Germany, lifetime prison sentence for murder, in addition to Victor Boot, who is a Russian who is serving a 25-year prison sentence here in the United States. But the Biden administration said that wasn't a serious counteroffer. So the question now is that with this sentencing expected today, will the Russians engage in more serious counteroffer? We don't know if that's the case, but the expectation from U.S. officials has long been that the conclusion of this trial is a significant marker as part of these efforts to get Griner home. I think you raise a very important point, given the, the political backdrop, as we've already discussed on the show and the fear, perhaps, from the U.S. administration that they're being toyed with. If we look at some of the comments that the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said earlier this week, it was that negotiations should be discreet, that megaphone diplomacy, I think he called it, and public exchanges of position won't lead to a result. Kylie, is there a, a significant fear that despite these negotiations taking place, Brittany could be spending a significant amount of time remaining in Russia. 
Most definitely there is. I, I mean, uh, in the Russian judicial system, the conviction rate is 99%. So we aren't expecting today, unfortunately, that she's going to be let go. We are expecting some sort of a prison sentence. And the charges that she is facing are punishable with up to 10 years in prison. So there are very real and legitimate concerns that she could be there for a while. And that's why the onus is on the U.S. government, on the Biden administration, uh, to try and get her home. And we should also note that all families of Americans wrongfully detained abroad really do put pressure on the U.S. government, work with them to try and get their loved one home. But Brittany Griner is a bit of a different uh, circumstance here just because she's so high profile. And it's not just her family who is pressuring the Biden administration, but it's also her teammates. It's the WNBA, where she has been a basketball star. All of these different groups putting pressure on the Biden administration. And that uh, makes this an even more uh, challenging and high profile situation, more challenging for the Biden administration. And of course, uh, the Kremlin might be pleased by that. Yeah, and we await that verdict in the next hour. For now, Callie Atwood, thank you for that. More First Move after the break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Travel giant Booking Holdings declared a milestone quarter as overnight stays returned to pre-pandemic levels. But a full recovery still some way off the parent company of brands, including Kayak, Priceline and Booking.com, reported second quarter revenue that came in slightly below estimates. In addition, airport lines and cancellations hurt growth in July. But its CEO remains optimistic. He's predicting a record summer season. And joining us now, here he is, Glenn Fogel, CEO and president of Booking Holdings. Glenn, always great to have you on the show. Congrats. This does feel like a milestone in terms of recovery. But I have to ask you what you think exactly happened in July and why it won't continue. Well, thanks for having me, Julia. And, and you're right. That is what everybody looks at. We had a fantastic second quarter. And of course, the first thing people ask, that's great. Tell me about July and what's going to happen <laughs> in the future. And it, it's Look, we are very happy how we progressed. This has been a long two and a half year recovery from the pandemic. There are ups and downs always. There's no linear recovery. Certainly, there are a lot of hypotheses about, gee, is this something macro? Did people all of a sudden book in May because when Omicron went down, so we pulled bookings forward, so to speak? Or is there something else happening? People seeing all the news. Apparently, there are a lot of news articles about crowds and airports and delays and cancellations and maybe people backed off a little bit. All in all, the one thing I am certain of is that the long-term view of travel is very good. We're getting out of this pandemic. People are traveling, they're enjoying seeing their families, enjoying life again, and we're going to be part of it. Yeah, I'm fascinated, actually, by how consumer behavior is adjusted in this period, whether people are booking shorter stays, they're aware of pricing pressures, or to your point, they're aware of sort of the media's coverage of pricing pressures, but also some of the disruptions and the frictions that we're seeing, um, or even whether they're just leaving it late to book. I sort of wonder how how much clarity you have on the third quarter, really, and into the fourth quarter, if people are sort of waiting to see what COVID looks like, what the logistics looks like, and what the, what prices look like? Because I'm certainly having anecdotally yeah. those discussions. Yeah. Well, all those things come into play. And it's interesting. We talked last night in our earnings call how we see for the third quarter, the current quarter, how we are above where we were at the same time in 2019, which is great. And we talked a little bit about the fourth quarter, and we said that we are 15 percent 
above where we were in 2019, albeit that 15% is based on constant currency, euros changed significantly, and that would have a negative impact on a dollar basis. It would bring it down from 15, maybe to 5% increase. Mm. But here's the important thing. That's still a small portion of what the total amount of bookings that will occur in the fourth quarter. Because the window right now, we talk about this booking window, how far people book in front of when they're going to go, is less, though, is less than it was in 2019. So you don't have as much visibility into what's happening. And I think there is some uncertainty. People are concerned. They listen to the shows on the news. And they say, gee, maybe I'm going to delay a little bit. So we don't know, really, fourth quarter. We don't really have a great view into it. But I do have a great view into the long term. And I'll say it again. The long term is travel will continue to increase as GDP goes up over the long run. So does travel. Yeah. And also people just want to get back out there. Um, It's interesting what you say about confidence and also what I heard on your earnings call about the uneven recovery, because Asia in particular, Southeast Asia, has lagged in terms of COVID recovery and getting back moving again. Um, You provide a survey of Asia Pacific region. I think it's 11,000 travelers across 11 nations um, and looked at the level of confidence over the next 12 months. And topping that list, the Indians are most confident, then the Vietnamese and then the Chinese, which actually surprised me given what we've seen, particularly over the last couple of quarters. Can you give us some context on there and whether that's translating to what you're seeing in terms of booking, bearing in mind everything that we just discussed? Well, look, it definitely is different in different countries. Absolutely. And one of the things we noticed in the recovery, looking at the second quarter, is how Asia travel in general is still below where it was in 2019 versus, say, the U.S., which is 30% ahead for us versus 2019. So different countries, different levels of confidence. And look, the rules in terms of travel are very different in China than they are in other parts of Asia and other parts of the world. And there are still some other Asian countries that have different restrictions on travel. And that impacts somebody's confidence in travel. So those are the factors that come in. Again, what we all hope is the same thing, which is that the pandemic goes away and we do end up back the way it used to be, where travel was much easier than it has been over the last two and a half years. You know, it's fascinating when I was looking through the results as well. There's two things that capture my attention because you're not just about travel. It's also about restaurant booking. So you have a great sense of how the consumer is behaving amid pricing pressures and perhaps trying to be a little bit more cautious about budgets. But also the alternative bookings, the um, rentals of homes is a a huge chunk of the business too. And that obviously did incredibly well during the pandemic, but that continues to be a real pillar of strength too, which actually surprises me. Are you surprised by that? Or or is that sort of part of what you were expecting as well? I'm I'm really not surprised because Mm -hmm. that alternative accommodations, as we call it, the non-hotels, once people have tried it and they liked it, they'll look (laughs) at it again when they're thinking about, should I use a hotel or not? And what's really the best place to stay for the type of holiday they want to take. So there are different use cases for different types of properties. But once somebody has tried it, they're less concerned about, gee, is this going to be good or not? And we are pleased to see that almost a third of our business, 32% of our business in the second quarter was this alternative accommodation business. And that's a couple of percentage points above where it was 2019. So I think this is a trend that's going to continue. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was the sort of stellar standout for me was the, the sort of ongoing strength. But of course, you knew it already. 
Glenn, great to chat to you. Mm -hmm. Congrats again on the quarter and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Glenn Fogel, CEO Thank and President you. of Booking Holdings there. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, a balancing act for investors weighing up strong earnings outlooks on the one side and recession fears on the other. Who's right? We'll find out next. Welcome back to First Move with a look at the U.S. market price action. And it's been a volatile start to the trading day on Wall Street, a bit of consolidation. We're seeing after the strong gains in the previous session as investors brace, of course, too, for Friday's U.S. jobs report. The jobs market is expected to see continued gains, albeit at weaker levels than in previous months. All this as the latest batch of corporate earnings results have come in strong and a new read on the health of the U.S. services sector also coming in positive, too. Rahel Solomon joins us now. One data point does not a trend make. However... We're pouring over every single one to try and get a glimpse of whether we're using the R word or not using the R word. And this this is a reason to be optimistic. We sure are. You know, Jason Furman recently said on Twitter, Julia, that if you're not a little confused about the economy right now, you're not paying attention. So I'm going to try to provide a bit of clarity here. So, yes, to your point, we got some uh, strong data in terms of the services industry from the ISI report yesterday showing uh, that not only did we continue to see growth for the services sector and the services industry, but it was really broad based when you look at the industries. 13 services reported growth in July. In terms of earnings, Julia, we're about halfway through, according to facts, that about 56 percent of the S&P 500 has already reported. And of that group, well, about three quarters have actually surprised on the upside in terms of earnings. About two thirds have surprised to the upside in terms of revenue. Obviously, welcome news. I should say, however, uh, facts that pointing out that the, that's lower than the five-year average in terms of the number of surprises and the magnitude. And then anecdotally, Julia, because we do sort of pour over every report and every data point, uh, we're hearing from some CEOs, certainly like Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi and some of the banks, that they're still seeing a strong consumer, that they're not seeing signs of a recession just yet. That said, we got initial jobless claims this morning, a a, a more real-time look at the employment picture here in the U.S., how many Americans are filing for unemployment, slightly hotter than expected. And then tomorrow, we will get the jobs report. So lots of data points, lots of reports. But as Jason said, if you're not a little confused about all of these conflicting reports, you're not paying attention. Hopefully that, yeah. that helps. And if that you cleared it deep, up. If, you, if you're deeply confused then, confused, then you're paying lots of attention, clearly. So um, <laughs> that's me. You, of course, are never confused. And it's a great point to watch by sectors as well, just to get a sense of, of the different parts of the economy, because clearly not all sectors move at the same time. And the consumer angles seem to, to be continuing resili- showing continuing resilience. And I'll get my teeth back in. Totally. Phew, the show's over. Thank goodness for that. Rahul Solomon, thank you. And finally, almost over. Did you know dogs use their sense of smell to help them see? Researchers at Cornell University examined two dozen dogs and noticed direct connections or pathways in the brain that controls smell and vision. They say that suggests the dog's sense of smell is more important than we thought. Hmm. I have to say, little Romeo has nose for trouble, let alone eyesight. Once he got his little snout jammed in some Tupperware, yes, he did, he was fine. But that's a story for another day. I do have the photographic evidence, though. But look, that's a good shot of his nose and his smile. Any opportunity. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at jchatterleyCNN. Connect the World is up next. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.